Hello, and welcome back to our uh, second roundtable discussion. Uh, this week, uh, we're going to be, last week we really focused, uh, a lot of my questions were focused on the book, Still Unbelievable, um, but I realized the fans want, really want to focus on, you know, the, the podcast, The Unbelievable Show, uh, with David and Andrew versus Justin Briley and Randall Rouser. So I focused my questions, uh, I've got three questions of my own based on the show, uh, and then I've got about four questions from the audience um, so that we're gonna that we're gonna discuss. But just before we get into that, I, I think David has an announcement he'd like to make. Okay, so it's just about audio from the last roundtable we did. So we've got four people on Skype. Uh, uh, so first of all, there are going to be some Skype uh, audio artifacts with a little uh, robotic sound here and there and some cutouts here and there. Can't do anything about that. Deal with it. Um, the other thing, though, is a much bigger thing. Uh, someone wrote in and said, you know, I'm listening to this podcast and there are long silences where I think that David should be speaking, but uh, it's just silence. Um this was not a special edited edition from Andrew, although that's the first thing I suspect it to. Um, actually, what happened was the way that I'm recording this, um, it ended up being some kind of strange stereo mix where uh, three of the participants were uh, kind of in the middle uh, toward the right side of the mix. And I was panned all the way to the left side of the mix. And so uh, this person who had the problem was only wearing one earbud. And uh, he was not wearing the earbud where I was. And none of my comments bleeded over to his side. So it's a stereo thing. If anything like that happens again, and I can't promise that I fix the problem because, frankly, I haven't had time to really troubleshoot it. So if something like that happens again, and I will also put this on the... Uh, on the blog uh, where this lands. Uh, just make sure you're listening to uh, both ears. The the audio is there. It just may have gotten panned all the way to one side or the other. Uh, and so my apologies uh, for that. And so the next time we do this, you know, I'll check the software and make sure that this doesn't happen. And I just want to say, if I am ever going to hack a podcast and have something happen to David's audio. It won't be silence. I will do something a lot more fun than just have David go quiet. <laughs> oh, please let it be Klingon. Please let it be a Klingon insert. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I don't like the way this is going, Dale. Please, please. I am the moderator. Uh, okay, so that's that's a good uh, a good comment there, Andrew. Uh, thank you very much. David well, I, you know, uh, I give, a, I give a, a technical thing, and then Andrew talks about how he's going to torpedo me, and you give him the attaboy? What's <laughs> the moderator did? Check it. Check is in the mail down there. Wow. I promise it's in the wow, mail. This is going to be a tough one. Andrew is now an ordinary Canadian. Nice. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, so yeah, just just one thing I forgot. Uh, bad on me as the moderator as well. Um, just to give a shout out to. Uh, so this is a combined podcast. So. Uh, we obviously have our Skeptics and Seekers podcast, which is at uh, skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com. Um, think I got that right. And also uh, the Ask an Atheist podcast. So that's uh, with oh, Matt. Oh. Ask an Atheist anything. Ask an Atheist anything uh, at the Reasons Press website. Uh, and that's Single right. reason. Uh, reason Press, singular. Okay. 
uh, Reason Press <laughs> website. Dot net. Dot net. Dot net. Why don't you do it then? Uh, <laughs> it, it's the Reason Press website. Dot net. Okay. No. <laughs> so it's uh, so, okay. So uh, for the listeners who are probably having audio trouble right now, uh, no, it is ask an atheist anything. You can find us at reasonpress.net. Beautiful. All right. Uh, so yeah, let's let's get straight into this then. So um, first, we're going to start off with the three questions that. I had based on what I heard in the show, um, and this one's going to be no surprise. So we, we addressed the idea of uh, objective versus subjective morality. Um, I have sort of a different take because I, I prefer to call it necessary morality or, or, you know, whether you think there are necessary moral truths. Um, and I think that's really what the Christian wants to get at. You know, we don't want morality to be arbitrary, but the be reflective of some kind of necessary standard. So in the first place, I, I think from the show, we already know David and Andrew's answer, but they can clarify that. Um, and I'm interested in Matt's answer. But in the first place, are, do you think there are any such things as necessary moral truths? Um, and second part is, uh, let's just assume for, this, for a second that there are such truths. Would you at least agree if there are these truths, then uh, that would need some kind of grounding in a necessary being such as God? Um, so, yeah. Let me, let me just, we'll, before, you, before you hand the mic over, can I ask you to clarify your definition? What do you mean by moral? We use this word a lot and we throw it around. It has a lot of hidden baggage in there. And I just want to know what we are or are not agreeing to before we answer this question. What, what do you mean by moral? Well, Oh, uh, yeah, uh, it's, you know, just sort of the common sense understanding. They're truths that pertain to, you know, morally relevant situations. No, but what, you, you're what using you moral do. again, and I'm asking you to define moral or morality. What do you mean by that? I know that you're sort of, you're trying to get me to say it's defined by God's nature, therefore it's not a valid question. No, I'm, just or something. You, I'm just trying that, to get you to that, define it at all. Now, I do believe that uh, when Christians say it, they are sneaking in some things about God's nature in there. But I want to make sure that we've got a clean word. I mean, could we, could, for instance, we substitute ethical. Let's ethics. call it ethical. Okay. So okay, if, sure. you would, if you would re-ask your question with the word ethics, I will withdraw my pedantic uh, definition question. Sure. Before are, are, you would... are there necessary yeah. ethical truths then? So let me ask a follow-up and just make sure that that we are actually talking about ethics. So when we talk about this thing that we're about to agree to, we're actually talking about um, the consequences of actions between uh, individuals in the in the sense of right and wrong. Now, I did not phrase that as good and evil uh, deliberately. So we're talking about ethical rights and wrongs, and presumably a Christian might talk about good and evil in a way that skeptics would not, but that's where we are, right? Okay. So is that, do we agree? We're, we're talking about uh, attempting to quantify and, and make decisions about rights and wrongs between individuals. Yes, exactly. And, and the question focuses on, are these necessary okay. kind of thing? Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I'll, I'll, Andrew, you go first since you're you're just asking the last one. Um, 
What do you think? Okay. All right. So we have a, a, a team notebook that we share, and um, my response is in there, Dale. I don't know if you've seen it. I uh, know I have. But okay. So it, it is in the the OneNote notebook. Okay. Um, it seems to me that the skeptic who does not accept objective moral truth has already answered the question. If I don't accept that there is such thing as objective moral truth in the sense that the Christian means it, so uh, truths that emanate from God, I am actually saying that I don't accept that uh, for anyone. But it seems to me that there's a larger issue here, and that is the issue um, where you say that these are necessary truths. Well, we know that there are uh, things of necessity about humans that don't require a God, at least from the skeptical perspective, right? So I have certain, emo uh, I have certain uh, instincts like fight or flight, and I am not convinced that it is impossible to have a moral truth that necessarily stems from an entirely natural environment. So even if you force me to agree that there are objective truths, you haven't gotten to forcing me to agree that these moral truths, these necessary truths emanate from God. So that's, okay. my, that's, yes, that's my position. Okay. Um, and, but if you, the second part you missed actually, sorry, Andrew, it, if I did convince you of this, um, would you think that, would you agree that that would imply the need for God? Or do you think these necessary moral or ethical truths uh, could be grounded in something else apart from God's nature or something like that? Well, so I think when you use the word necessary, I've got the usual uh, meta-ethical objection to it. If you're saying that the truth itself is necessary, then in some way you're implicating God because a necessary truth is not a contingent truth. And so I think right away, now I realize there are some objections to this, and, and you and I may go after this in a, in a podcast of our own, right, okay. uh, the, the nature of necessity. But I do think there's an important implication about crafting objective truth as necessary, because the moment you craft it as necessary, I think you're necessarily saying it's non-contingent, and at that point, mm -hmm. you're saying that God is not the founder of that truth. Okay. Um, how about how about you then, Matthew? What what would your take be on these two questions? Um, <clears throat> firstly, I'm puzzled by the use of the word truce, where I would normally see the word values. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a strange word to use in this context. Uh, so uh, when I'm done, I'd like to see what the different, uh, like your take, and what the difference is between a moral truth and moral value, if if there is even a difference. Uh, I also need a clear understanding of what is meant by necessary in this question. And I'm going to assume, for the purpose of my answer, that it's a similar meaning to word objective. So I'm conflating necessary moral truth with objective moral value. If I'm wrong, you'll need to correct me. Okay. Um, in that it claims that, so I'll assume that it is similar to objective in that it claims that there are no moral values which are not subject to, sorry, I'll... <clears throat> 
I'll restart that sentence. I'll, I'll assume that the use of necessary is similar to the use of objective in that it claims that there are moral values which are not subject to subjective human opinion and are somehow imparted onto us from an external source. These values are absolute and cannot be contravened. If this is the case, that, then yes, that external source needs to be explained. And it is possible that source could be a god, but I don't think that that automatically concludes that it comes from a god. There could be a non-god explanation. However, the first step is showing that the claim is true and that there are, in fact, necessary moral truths or objective moral values. And when you've done that, then we can work on what the source is. But first, you need to, to show that there are, and I don't accept that there are. Okay, uh, and how about you, David? Okay, so uh, first, I did not uh, read the questions in advance. I know that you sent them out, and I did not look at them. Uh, so I wanted to I wanted to approach them as fresh as possible. Also, I've been really busy. Uh, so yeah, I yeah, appreciate Dave, David. <laughs> David's been putting in a lot of work for our podcast extravaganza week. So I, I just want to say you deserve a lot of credit for for everything you've been doing. So well, let me just say. Podcast extravaganza week, dumb idea. That's really a dumb idea when you're the one doing all the editing and stuff. Uh, it needs to be rebranded as something other than podcast extravaganza week. That's pew. P -E well, <laughs> slow motion. Just call it the sweetie bucket. Ever suggest another podcast extravaganza week? I expect one of my close friends to hit me upon the head until I am unconscious. So. There are um, so many volunteers. <laughs> I'm on to I'm on to Expedia.com right now, booking my plane ticket. <laughs> well, not everyone all at once. Uh, so, <laughs> so with that in mind, um, I'm going to have to agree with Matthew's first uh, instinct, which is to say that to add truth to this question is question begging. It is, it is the very definition of begging the question because you are assuming the conclusion in the question that there are moral truths, moral facts to start with. Uh, and so the moment, the moment you do that, I think that the, the well is, is pretty well poisoned. So I would, I would follow Matthew's objection. I, I think that, um, I think that calling calling it that poisons the question. Now, um, my objection was uh, to the word moral because of a lot of the baggage that that carries. I, w I also want to object to another couple of words that have not been used, uh, which is uh, good and evil, which also carries a lot of baggage. So, so we switch to ethics, but we still have, to, you know, in defining ethics, we still have to talk about right and wrong. Okay, so right according to whom, wrong uh, according to whom, or maybe right for whom or what situation, or wrong for whom or what situation. Um, you can't just assume a, a single uh, definer or a single point of view of, of right and wrong to do this. So when I talk about ethics, I am specifically limiting myself to things that are either socially beneficiary, uh, uh, socially beneficial, excuse me, or socially detrimental. 
And I look at that as a continuum with the beneficial on the one end, you can call that good, and the detrimental on the other hand, we can call that bad. And all actions fall somewhere within that continuum. Some, you know, there is a, a deep middle where actions just don't trigger either side. It, it's neither socially good nor is it socially detrimental. And those actions I don't even think of in in, in the ethical since they are aethical, if you will, or amoral, and that morality doesn't even come up for them. Ethics is, doesn't even come up for them. Whether you eat cornflakes this morning or, or, or Rice Krispies is not an ethical decision. Uh, and so uh, that, that would be aethical or amoral, if you will. Uh, whether you decide to take a gun and shoot innocent people out of school, that would be a very socially detrimental thing and therefore easily on the bad side of the scale. Um, and then you can you can donate you know a lot of money to, to curing a disease and I think that that would be on the good side of the scale. So I'm, I'm wanting to define these terms for myself so that we can know what baggage I'm bringing and also eliminate the hidden baggage that's also that's often brought uh to these terms now once you once you uh, once you understand it from my perspective you'll see that the question doesn't really have much meaning because necessary ethics it's always a matter of what the situation is um, it's it's always a matter of that. I can't think of a, I can't think of too many things. Uh, you know, there's some things that are emotional hot buttons, but I honestly can't think of too many things where you can you can say, well, this is clearly wrong. Where I couldn't come up and say, well, but if the situation were like this, uh, then it would be less wrong. Uh, or you could say, well, this is clearly right. This is always a good thing. Well, no, I can think of some situations where that's a bad thing. It always depends. On this situation, ethics is almost by definition situational, and so I don't I I disagree with the premise uh, that there are specific moral truths that are that stand apart from uh, social harm and social uh, benefit uh, that are that are divorced from the situation somehow. Okay. Dale, can I ask you a question? And um, happy to give you. Let's do that. Yeah, but I'm I'm looking at the time. Uh, sure. Oh, I'm happy okay. to give you the last word on this. Okay, but I I think I have the second part of the question though. <laughs> so before you ask oh, the question, yeah, Dale, well, would you oh, like oh, would you like to ask the first part of my question? Are you are you okay? So here, here here's what we'll do. No, then. no, there's David, a second part David, to Dale's David question. David will answer. That, that yeah, like David will answer the second part. Then Andrew, I'll let you ask my question. But um, so that'll be the plan of that. Sure. Fair enough. Go ahead. Okay, what's David? Okay, so the second part of your question is, if we were to concede uh, that mm. there were some definite uh, uh, moral truths that were that were apart from human inter- uh, agreement, apart from situation, apart from all that, which I will never uh, actually believe. But if, if we were to believe that, then does that mean that there must be a God? And the answer is no, for the same reason that Euthypro's dilemma still stands, def- despite the number of people who think they've defeated it. Uh, because the fact of the matter is, if there is a situation where this is the right thing, and it's the right thing in every possible universe, uh, then it is the right thing independent of whether there is a God or not. It is simply the right thing because it is the right thing. Uh, and so the answer would be 
no. If you found something that was objectively true, you wouldn't need a God to make it objectively true. It would be independent of mind, including God's mind. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. So, Andrew. Oh, I, like um, I like that answer. <laughs> hey, you were on my side just a couple minutes ago on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm easily swayed, boy. Okay. Well, no, that's good. That means you're open to, to considering the evidence and changing your mind. But, um, yeah. So, so Andrew, you had a question, question for me? I do. It's in two parts. So, do you think that all moral truths are necessary truths. Yes. Or, okay, you do think all moral truths are necessary truths. So there is no moral truth that can have a subjective component. Uh, for instance, um, when a child reaches for a stove and one parent chooses to slap the child's hand and another parent chooses to verbally warn the child, there is a necessary true answer there yeah if if like i don't i don't think that either option is necessarily wrong um so i'm not sure the moral question like it depends what you mean by slapping the hand like you know i i might react quickly and just like oh no no don't do that or something and i'm not trying to hurt the kid i'm just trying to let's stop it like don't don't get hurt, so I'm not sure. Yeah. So that sounded like a very subjective answer, to be honest. Well, it's, it's subject. Okay, so you asked me if subjective elements can be a part of it. Yes. yes they're, they're involved, okay. but there's still okay. that necessary moral truth, which would apply. Let's say it is, it, it is wrong to slap a hand versus give a verbal warning or something. Okay, well, that would be a necessary. It's necessarily morally wrong to slap the hand. You should give a verbal warning or something. Okay. Now, since you've said there can be subjective components, mm -hmm. can you always know? So the, the problem with claiming that these two can live in the, in the same ecosystem is that for your objective moral truths to stand, you have to be able to always determine when, which is the objective component and which is the subjective component. If you cannot, what you are left with is some objective components that can be subjective and vice versa. And if you're saying, no, there cannot be any subjective components, then what you're left with is there is a right and wrong that we can't always know. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't think our moral consciences are infallible in every respect. I, I myself, like, okay, I, I know because the Bible tells me that it, you know, certain sins are wrong, but my moral conscience itself, like, I didn't think it was wrong before I was a Christian. I didn't, I don't, I still don't see, you know, exactly what's wrong with certain, certain sinful behaviors. So I derive that from scripture. My, my moral conscience is damaged because of the effects of sin, but that doesn't deny that I have at least some necessary moral truth. So, um, yeah, I, I prepared some, like, I, I didn't prepare, but I wrote, I was writing down these notes. So, okay, so you, you asked me about uh, what I mean by necessary, and I, I think I'm more in tune with what Andrew's saying when he's talking about the nature of necess metaphysical necessity. So, I, I'm saying it's a moral truth that applies in every logically possible world. That's what I mean by necessary. It's true 
it's a true proposition that the moral thing to do is not not slap the hand, but give a verbal warning. This this truth apply is true in every possible world. Um, the why do I use the word uh, moral truths instead of the usual principles and values? Um, because truths is a it's a wider application that includes principles and values. It also includes what I call tactile morality, or you know, like specific. Uh, situations or more, you know, there's different morally relevant circumstances which could apply in some situations but not in others. Um, but those necessary moral truths are specific to those situations, to those, you know, different situations. So I don't believe morality is, you know, are, are absolute, if that's what you're trying to say. Even when I'm saying necessary, there's a difference between absolute um absolute there the, the best i could say that i think is absolute it would be these moral principles or values which determine um you know the the tactile morality or or applied ethics what do you what is morally right in a specific situation but yeah like if there's different morally relevant circumstances that can change the the proper moral response uh Thank you. Um, thank you for answering it. I won't follow it up, but if one of us should put a, uh, a note in the notebook, because I think there's some interesting ground there. How yeah, do you know? Go ahead. Dan. I was just going to say, we can, we can uh, continue the conversation on the blog, which happens a lot. Uh, <laughs> these conversations go on uh, and, and then they, they live on other shows beyond that. So I just, I just wanted to say there's, there's, ample opportunity to follow up and right. also for the com com community to jump in and um, be a part of it. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for uh, the full answer, Dale. I, oh, I don't think oh, I agree, well. but I look forward to uh, following it up. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, this is sort of a, a the next question then is, is a related one. Again, it's on, it's on the moral argument, but um, it's, it's one thing because I know uh, a lot of people on the blogs uh, and David mentioned this, that, you know, Justin Briley wanted to focus in his book on the moral argument for God in general, like some sort of general theism concept. He wasn't getting it. You know, you guys are totally off topic when you're talking about uh, the Old Testament conquests or the morality of the God. And I think David had a relevant uh, counter to that, that, yeah, but you're a Christian. It, it's not just the fact, um, you know, we're not just interested in some God of the philosophers, but the Christian God as well. Why do you, you know, we want to know if the Christian God is actually God. But here's where I, where I disagree with you guys, but I, th I think they have a valid point because I, I do see that there should be, a, there can be, let's say that, a separation. You, I myself came to faith by first believing in general theism. So, you know, maybe I am convinced that there are these necessary moral truths and God is the explanation for that okay, now I'm a general theist, then I can assess the secondary question. Well, does the Christian God as described in the Bible reflect that morally perfect God? So that's what my question is, is I want to put to you guys, do you see this as somehow problematic or invalid to, to separate the questions? Like, it, it's not that we're dividing and then ignoring, we're, we're dividing, but just delaying. We're still going to come to that that issue of whether the biblical God is moral or not, um, but it, it's just one step at a time. We're building a cumulative case. So yeah, I'll, I'll pass it to Matt first this time, because I think Andrew went first last. 
Okay, well, we've already established that I don't think that the moral argument gets to a God anyway. But if you want to make the leap to the Christian God, my response, like many people in my position, is going to be, which Christian God? Do you want the God that flooded the world and drowned millions? Or do you want the God that didn't do that, but he lets the story stand to be used as a warning not to piss him off? Okay, so that that's not my question, though. It's... Do you do you think that, you know, how Justin tries to argue for a some kind of general theism and avoids discussion in his book, from what he's told us on the show, he avoids, you know, getting into the issues of well, the Old Testament conquests are immoral, therefore this Christian God, like they're, they're two separate questions. Is that invalid in your opinion? Do you, you know, well, I still <laughs> end up on the um, on the angle of which Christian God, because I can, you go to different churches around the country, your country or mine or David and Andrew's, whichever country you want to pick, and you'll find different descriptions of, in quote, inverted commas, the Christian God. So I think saying which Christian God do you want is, is valid. Um, but if we, if we say, if we take that as a generalistic and say, okay, uh, let's take it as uh, as a Christian God rather than just any God, I'm I'm not really sure how that differentiates from where Justin's position is. Yeah, I, I'm I'm supporting Justin. I'm saying it is valid, or I'm not. Okay, I'm I'm asking a question. If it is valid or not, so. Um, like, can't can't you separate the question of whether first we have a general theism, and then worry later on down the road? Then we're worried about which of the Christian gods. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't think the moral argument is um, is uh, what's the word I'm looking for is nuanced enough to differentiate between right. gods. Gotcha. Uh, I, um, because in the answer to my previous one, I said we need to first establish whether or not they're morals, and then we can examine, uh, sorry, objective morals or necessary morals, however we want to, to define it. Um, in the answer to the previous question, I said first we need to establish that as the fact. So let's assume for the sake of this, this question that that has been established. How do you then determine which, which God there is? I don't think the moral argument is sophisticated enough uh, oh, crumbs, I just used that word. Um, I don't think the moral argument is sophisticated enough, nuanced enough, pick whichever word you like, to establish a particular god. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's equipped to do that. I think you need something else. Um, gotcha. Dare I say it's something more scientific to differentiate between which god it is, which potential god it is that actually exists. And I really don't see the moral argument as being capable of doing that. Fair enough. And, I think it's uh, the right tool for answering that question. Yeah, um, and I, I'll just uh, one quick thing to I, I actually agree with you. I don't think the the intention of the moral argument is to get that that sort of specific. Um, are we allowed to counter, agree? But yes, is there, of course, are, we, are, we, are we allowed to agree? About, oh my word! A, I'm <laughs> editing this whole section out. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would say that, um, shoot, I had a good point. Um, I'm sorry, Dale. I was being no, too no. facetious. <laughs> no worries. Um, okay. It was a good one. But, I, uh, oh, yeah, I was just going to say, like, um, it, it 
the point the the point of the question that I'm asking, it, I don't care about whether. Let's pretend the moral argument is garbage. It, it's a failure. It, it it's still my question is it is it still okay to separate this question from moral issues surrounding uh, the biblical God? And I'll turn it over to David this time. Uh, you know, okay, like okay, so what's your your let response? Me, let to me this just question? run right that at that because I I think I understand what you're asking. The answer is no. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start with no, absolutely not. You cannot separate uh, these questions. Uh, you cannot uh, try to establish a general theism first, and then circle in on you know getting around to the God of the Bible. Uh, because if a Christian establishes general theism, I think they almost exclude the God of the Bible by by nature. So Christians are not, in fact, trying to establish a general theism. They are trying to establish a specific theism. Um, and so, yeah, I don't. I think that first step is a disingenuous step. And I think that when Christians take it, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm about to get acerbic. I think <laughs> that Christians are being totally disingenuous when they talk about uh, the method of. Um, uh, what do you what do you call a gradual uh, adding general evidence? You're oh, adding cumulative evidence. Yeah, accumulative. Thank you. Uh, I think the accumulative case is a completely disingenuous uh, attempt by Christians. And I think that when you talk about the moral argument, this stepped case, well, we'll prove this thing, and then we'll prove the next thing, and then we'll prove the next thing. It's disingenuous. And here's why. Because we can all agree here. Even you can add some more Christians to the uh, panel, and they will agree. You can add William Lane Craig to the panel, and he will agree that the moral argument does not get you to God. He knows that. Every Christian knows that. Here's the problem. So they'll say, well, you know, this just gets you to agree that there must be some kind of theistic answer, and then we'll get to God. They Mm -hmm. never build that bridge never build that bridge. They never go back to this general God and then prove the specific God. It never happens. They never intend for it to happen. It's disingenuous. I would dare say it's a lie. But here's the other reason uh, you can't do that. Uh, Because the God of the Bible has a record, and we can read the record. It's a record of his thoughts, his actions, Uh, his motives, we have a record of that God. Now, the moral argument describes the kind of God that only does good, right things, however you define that. The God of the Bible clearly does not only do good, right things. It cannot be the God. I would not even say that, you know, it's possible that it could be that God. No, it's impossible for it to be the God of the Bible. If what we're doing is looking at a record of good and we're saying that the moral argument leads to a God that is all good, they cannot meet. It cannot be the same thing. And so you cannot use the uh, moral argument to lead to some kind of general theistic landing point and then try to build a bridge to a God where it clearly does not apply. No and no. Okay, uh, Andrew, what what are your thoughts? So David uh, took the last three minutes to give you my answer, but I think I want to go uh, a step further and talk about why I think uh, attempting the moral argument in the case specifically of the Christian God 
is out of bounds. We heard it on this episode of Unbelievable that David and I participated in. At the beginning of the show, Randall accused the writers of Still Unbelievable of bringing up material that wasn't in Justin's book. What was that? That was the Old Testament. And Randall's objection was, well, hey, we disagree over the Old Testament. And when we came back from the commercial break, I said, yeah, but even if you didn't have the Old Testament, you still disagree. Here's the bigger problem. If you are suggesting that Christians should distance themselves from the Old Testament because the Old Testament casts that God in some specific moral light that is unfavorable to that God, then I, as a skeptic, have no reason to cozy up to the New Testament as a better moral authority because it's the same God. And I don't have any legitimate reason, as far as I can tell, for thinking that the God of the New Testament is necessarily more moral. He just seems like a God who changed his mind a little bit, and I don't know that he won't again in the future. Perfect. Yeah, and on that front, that was a point you made in the show. I I would agree 100% in the sense that the God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old Testament. So, you know, they would stand or fall together. Um, But yeah, I I would just say, wow, I I think I, I disagree with your and David's take that no, they, they are separable. It is valid to separate, but not ignore. If I'm if I'm doing what you're saying in terms of, uh, you know, well, we got the moral argument that gets us God, but think no further. Don't don't pay attention to that Joshua text or anything like that. Um, then I would agree with you guys, but that that's not what Justin is saying. He's just saying, look, let's deal with this one topic at a time. Let's get you to a God who's the foundation of morality. Then you have this other question. Well, does the biblical God live up to that foundation of morality or not? They can be two separate questions. And that's that's the way I came to faith. I sure as heck was not disingenuous or, you know, trying to play a mental trick or anything. That that's what, you know, like that is that is a valid means of, um, you know, coming to faith, in my opinion. So that that would be my take there. Um, yeah, just looking at the time, um, let's move on to the third, and this is the last of my questions. So you guys, uh, for the audience, we'll be getting to the questions that you guys are more interested in. Um, but this one is actually one I'm, I'm really excited to get. It's about the resurrection. Um, and I, I've tried to put, uh, not go, not just go over the same thing that you guys have already said, although there will be some overlap, um, but it, it's in relation to the minimal facts approach. Um, so this is, a, again, a two-part question, and uh, I know David's already answered some people on the boards about this, but I'll be interested in hearing everyone. Um, so in the first place, there's two different levels. There's, you know, the factual basis when you're establishing the case for the historicity, so those are the minimal facts case, that type of thing. And then there's analyzing those facts on an explanatory level. So. Um, do you want me to ask both parts at once? Yeah, um, ask, ask or should both I... at once. Yeah, also, go both parts. Mention gotcha. who asked the question if you have that written down. This this one is mine. Okay. Um, okay. But yeah, I, I noticed a lot of feedback from a bunch of people on the resurrection uh, on both Randall's site and Unbelievable, so that's why I wanted to ask it. Plus, this was the second topic of the show. Um, so yeah, in the first place, I'm wondering if any, if you think that 
if any of you think that any of the minimal facts that Christian apologists present can uh, be said to be either historical or at the very least, you would agree that it's it's reasonable for a Christian to think these facts are historical. Pick me, pick me, pick me. Yep, you're you're first after we all this. Get picked. Second, we all get picked. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm keeping track. I went with Andrew on the first one, then Matt first on the second, so that's David. You're going to go first, David, this, this on this one. This will be my shortest answer. Okay, uh, but my second my second aspect. Okay. So this is on the explanatory level. So assuming there are any of these facts that you guys would would grant are at least reasonable for a Christian to believe. Um, are there any of these facts that you think could be somewhat problematic to explain with purely natural mechanisms? Are, are there any natural explanations that are there any facts that you think natural explanations appear to be strained or or that sort of thing? Uh, so those that's it. So yeah, David, go ahead. I know you're champing at the bit, chomping at the bit. I am. Um, <laughs> and take this bit out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Uh, here's the thing. I, I don't care. Uh, so I'm going to let uh, Andrew and Matthew actually deal with the question because I got some polemic to get off here. Um, okay. the, the true answer in my emotional self is I don't give a damn uh, about whether any of the um, minimal facts are actually facts because I can grant you all of them. I can grant you all six, including the empty tomb, which is uh, one that Gary Habermas even doesn't include. Uh, So if I grant you the absolute truth of every one of them, and you can throw in a few more if you like, it still doesn't get you all the way to a resurrection. There is still a place where if you're crossing this bridge and you're trying to get to the other side, there's still a half a bridge that you're going to have to leap over with the wings of faith. It does not get you all the way over there. And so the minimal facts are still too minimal to get you to a resurrection. So this is the problem with evidentialists in general. You think you've got evidence for the proof of the existence of God and the the ministry of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Even if we grant all of the things that you call proof, it only builds you half a bridge. And you still have to use the same faith mechanism as people who don't claim to be evidentialists. So that's why I say I don't care uh, about the question because at the end of the day, you still got to use the same faith that none evidentialists have to use. Uh, your second question. Um, well, you just answered. Yeah, I think you just answered it, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> sure. Well, Ed, ask it again, uh, though, just to, because I had something specific to say about that. I just forgot how it was worded. Um, so yeah, I, I guess um, basically I, w- I was asking about okay, even if you grant these facts at the explanatory level, explanatory level, is there anything about it that you are there any of these facts that you think a naturalistic explanation uh, could at least reasonably be said to be improbable or problematic or or strained, something like that? Well, uh, so naturalistic explanations don't interest me either uh because if we're talking about the bible and we're trying to prove the greatest miracle on earth uh we don't we don't need naturalistic explanations uh we're we're looking for miraculous explanations and so if what you're asking for is do any of the minimal facts uh 
can they not be explained with naturalistic explanations? The answer is no. Every one of the minimal facts uh, mm -hmm. can be explained with a naturalistic explanation. And so that is far more likely, whatever the naturalistic explanation is, it's far more likely than something happened outside of what is naturally possible. Now, let's just say we apply a non-zero possibility to something happening outside of nature it's still lower than the naturalistic explanation we come up with. So um, once again, uh, in reverting back to the first answer, it only gets you so far and you've got to, you've got to use the same tool of faith that the non-evidentialist has to use to get across that river. The bridge won't go far enough. Okay, uh, Andrew, you're next. Andrew, hello? Can anyone hear that, me? My... I got gotcha. you. Uh, I will. I will <laughs> ring. I will ring Andrew uh, again. He may have fallen off of Skype. It's a, you know, it's a. I didn't, I didn't short, mean to it's offend. A short platform, and uh, uh, I, I, I didn't mean pushed. to offend. No, no. It's, it's. I saw an opportunity to just push him into the river, and I did it. Um, okay. I'm here. Oh I'm, no! Uh, never mind. <laughs> I didn't do a good and, job. So let's see. I was, I was sorry. No, I was on mute um, just to avoid any background noise. And we've been picking up some on the line during this uh, during this episode. There's been some clicking and whatnot. So I was making sure that it wasn't me. And because of the way Skype handles the iPhone dialer, I was having trouble getting past the Skype interface uh, to get to the mute button. So at any rate, it, it uh, was rather unpleasant while well, you enjoyed. were Android. <laughs> um, okay, so you did want David to have to dial me again. Okay. All right. Dale, uh, in the middle of fumbling with the interface, I lost the thread. Um, would you ask me that a part at a time? Yep. Um, so the first part deals with uh, the evidence for the resurrection on a factual level. Are, are there any, uh, you know, historical facts or minimal facts that? Christian apologists present that you think is at least reasonable to believe is true. And then the second is on the explanatory level um, of these facts that you might grant. Uh, is there anything where you think, uh, you know, the naturalistic explanations are, are somewhat problematic in explaining them? Okay, fair enough. So to the first part, um, yes, people die all the time. Yes, they crucified people. Yes, we have empty graves. Happy to give you all of that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> now, You're too kind uh, to me, man. <laughs> so, so are there any of those, uh, and, and of the other minimal facts, such a little tongue-in-cheek, mm -hmm. are there any of the other minimal facts that I think get us to the resurrection even being equally likely to some natural uh, to some natural explanation. No. Okay, perfect. Uh, yeah, all right, excellent. Uh, Matt, it's your turn. You're not even gonna get half a bridge from me, I'm afraid. The only fact that I would accept is that the Romans crucified a lot of people, including some who are allegedly messiahs. Go and do a Google search now. You can find individuals other than Jesus who had the messiah label attached to them. The crucifixion of Jesus, if it happened at all, wasn't unique. And as for the facts attributed to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, 
I see no compelling reasons at all to accept any of them. They are claimed in a religious text which is motivated to paint Jesus as the one and only Messiah, and by that definition, it makes it biased and suspect. And those claims cannot and should not be accepted as unquestionable fact, and to do so is dishonest. Just, just out of curiosity, if you don't mind me asking, they call like, me I know <laughs> um, I, but I know, I know David and Andrew's. I think Andrew's position. But uh, would you? Are you? Would you say you're a, a mythicist? You don't believe Jesus even existed? Then I am genuinely on the fence. Uh, is 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 your honest answer? I I'm not sufficiently convinced either way that any position is true. If you nail me to a corner and say I have to pick one, I'm more likely to fall on the mythicist side. Uh, but I don't think there's enough information to confidently claim mythicism. But at the same time, there isn't enough information for me to claim that Jesus as a person existed. So I'm, yeah. So I'm, 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 I'm driving down the middle of the road on that, and I don't think there'll ever be enough information for me to move out of that lane. And I don't, I don't want to leave my friend Matthew hanging, and so I will uh, come out of the closet right now. Oh, uh, I was trying careful not to reveal. I'm no, kind of it's, o- it's okay. I'm going to, I'm going to out myself. Okay. I am a Star Trek. I am a Star Trek fan. Um, <laughs> Also, also, uh, I am a reluctant mythicist, uh, so I argue as if Jesus were real. Uh, I have written uh, three books. It's still unbelievable being a part of one book and two other books, one I'm about halfway done with, one I'm completely done with, uh, that argue as if Jesus were actually real and everything that the Bible says about him is true. I don't believe that for a moment. I think it's easier to argue that way. Uh, I don't need Jesus to uh, not be real to to make a compelling case against Christianity. It's like I said, it's, it's really easier to argue against Christianity if you if you just assume certain things about Jesus. Uh, but all of those things are things that I grant for the sake of argument. The fact of the matter is, and I, I don't want to be, but I am a mythicist. I'm a reluctant mythicist. I would rather not be a mythicist. Um, I don't know how strong of a mythicist I am. Uh, someone could convince me that Jesus is real. It wouldn't matter because I already argue as if he were real. Uh, and so uh, I just, I, I don't want to leave Matt uh, hanging out there by himself on, on that. Uh, <laughs> I, I so, like being in the middle all on my own. It's where all the best dancers are. I think and you Andrew. are going to be in the middle um, because I am not a mythicist. Okay. I am, well, you, you mentioned uh, a moment ago that, that David and I might share the same opinion. We have, in fact, had some knockdown dragouts over this, uh, over this mythicist thing. Why won't My, he stay down? <laughs> I'm it's with be, you, Andrew. I, it's I, I because you hold that. a bad position. <laughs> no, look, here, here's my actual oh, view. And, and David or Matthew, either one may well be right. I am not a mythicist. I suspect that the Jesus character is compiled. Now, I think there probably was an itinerant Christian preacher somewhere in the past, and maybe his name was Jesus. I don't actually care in the sense that uh, mythicism stacks up against a historic Jesus in the sense that we mean it. 
in the in the you can read the pages of the New Testament and here's this guy that uh, you know called twelve disciples and then there were eventually apostles and one of them was named John and he was baptized and and et cetera et cetera. That character does not exist. I, I suspect that there might have been a character um, that is the root of the Jesus story. But whoever he is, he's not the character painted in the pages Matthew through Revelation. Fair enough. Yeah, um, thank you guys so much. I, I swear I wasn't trying to force you guys to, to reveal your positions on that. But yeah, thank, thank you guys. I think the audience will, will appreciate hearing your thoughts on that front. So I think it's cool that we all have a different answer to that one. Well, yeah, I, I think same. it's cool uh, that... Andrew well, you haven't heard my answer a, yet. Andrew, Andrew thinks he's not a mythicist. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, what Please rearrange the... <laughs> what do you mean by mythicist? Yeah. <laughs> Please rearrange the following words into a phrase you understand. Me, Mike. Mythicist. That's okay, so, <laughs> so yeah, I'll, I'll just provide my, my quick take then. So um, yeah, I, I do um, believe on a factual level that... You know, I do believe the minimal facts, or at least a lot of the minimal facts, are true. And I even go beyond that. I do believe the empty tomb is probably historical. I believe in the appearance to the 500 as well. Um, you know, That's I, I, interesting. It is. Do you think we should... about that verse? I really do. Do, do you Sorry? think we can argue mythicism on our next uh, regularly scheduled Skeptics and Seekers? Yes. Uh, um, Please do. Please, what, you guys. What do you, what do you say, Neil? It's your, it's your topic. It is next, my topic. Next week, so and we'll, we'll, be, we'll, be, to <laughs> we'll be queuing it up probably Tuesday. So, um, yeah, let's let's let's. I want to tear apart that five hundred people verse. Yeah, let's do this. By the way, I for the looked. listeners, the five hundred people verse is Matthew twenty-seven verses uh, fifty-one no, to fifty-three. That's the zombie passage. The five hundred people. That's the five hundred we're talking no, about. It's Dale, was that not? Oh, no, no, no. Dale, the five hundred in first, first Corinthians. The first yeah. Corinthians. Oh, first Corinthians. My, my, it's, my when, it's when Paul invents five hundred witnesses. I, 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 look, that's yeah. equally culpable to Matthew 27. Mm -hmm. Paul doesn't know anything about the zombies in Matthew 27. He never, he never heard of them. <laughs> that's because he hadn't. That's because he hadn't had another epileptic seizure yet. Oh, okay. Um, so the yeah, and, and forged Corinthians in Paul's letter just rearranged that Matthew verse and put it in his 500. <laughs> Um, well, okay, but I do want to ask, Dale, because this is your mic. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to steal your time, but I do want to understand whether you think Matthew 27, um, 51 to 53, maybe, the, the, the resurrection no, of the 500. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Um, was, was that a historic event where actual dead people got up and went into Jerusalem? I So I'm not dogmatic. It could be. Um, I don't see any reason you know, to to think that all oh, that's in, that that's ridiculous compared to Jesus rising or something like that. But sure. I lean toward Michael Cohn. I, I think this is apocalyptic literature. Okay. So yeah, I would say on a balance. Yeah, that that would be my take. Yeah, I, I think and he's I, right. And I would say, as I will be glad to repeat on the next uh, regular skeptics and seekers, to even give that a little bit of credence, is bat shift crazy? <laughs> and um, by apocalyptic, do you mean it's yet to happen? No, it's it's that's the genre of it. Like they use, you know, like um, in Acts, they'll quote from Joel, like the the blood turned 
the moon turned to blood and stuff like that. That that's apocalyptic or symbolic type language, just like Revelation. Like the, you know, I I don't believe that the beasts are meant to be taken literal or you know all the, all those type things. So it's the same genre at that point that Revelation is or you know Jewish apocalypse. It should be language. taken no more seriously than when a drunk staggers out of a bar saying the moon it's blood beware okay. that's okay, but, your apocalyptic but, uh, language right there but um yeah let, let's move on to our audience questions now so you guys don't have to put up with my what interests me or, and that sort of thing so so this one is an interesting one actually and it comes from our friend Tara um, and this is about the role of emotions in relation to knowing truth. Um, so, yeah, you know, like um, Tara has, she, she basically says that the problem with Christians is that they lack emotionality. And in the context, it's sort of about, you know, those immoral Bible verses. But really, I want this question to be general, in general, including everything. What is the role of emotions in that you think is, you know, are, are they valid to coming to knowledge of truth um, in any matters? Are they just totally useless? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll open it up, and it's Andrew's turn to go first this time. What do you think? Oh, well, do emotions play a role in coming to truth? I'd say they play exactly the same role in coming to uh, a knowledge of the truth as they do in coming to the knowledge of a falsehood. Okay. That's my answer. Perfect. Um, and Dave, David now. I agree. <laughs> you guys aren't taking the question seriously. I right? am okay. taking it. Okay, look. Okay. <laughs> no, I am. This is Terrence, not taking, mine. This is, I, <laughs> look, I, but I am taking it seriously. I thought, Kip, sorry, I sorry, thought, Dave, I thought me, Andrew's answer was great, and I was, was perfectly willing okay. to save time by saying what he said. Not that I don't have any opinions or thoughts. Oh, I, okay. So, Tara... We love you, Tara. I am so glad to have you on the show in this way, Tara. I'm so glad that we're not talking about the consciousness of Tara. So thank you for not asking that. Um, so, yeah, I do take it seriously. Let me go at that a little. Dale, I, I don't want a listener to come to the conclusion that I did not take a question seriously. Okay. I will happily give you the exact backstory I have for that question. When we talk about truth between us, I'm not talking about what any individual might think of as truth, but when we are talking about a shared truth, we are talking about those things that you and I can do independently to arrive at the same answer. So if we walk outside and we say, how tall is your house or how tall is my house? we will use uh, uh, the, either the standard system, uh, feet and inches, or, or we'll use the metric system. We'll use centimeters and meters. And based on SI measurements and that sort of thing, we will come up with the same answer. So when we talk about the nature of truth, we are talking about those things that do not appeal to human, notion, uh, human emotions in order to arrive at an answer that we can share because we can't share each other's emotions through anything but sympathy and empathy, which are not quantifiable in the way that we are talking about truth. So I said what I meant, and I meant what I said. Uh, yeah. Emotions play the same. No, 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 I know. I, I just, I am being emphatic, not because of what you said, but because I really do care about the answer. 
right? I, I care about this answer. So this is not directed at you. Gotcha. And it's not directed at any individual listener. This is what was behind my answer. Emotion plays exactly the same role in arriving at a truth as it does at a, a, a falsehood because we don't share emotions in the same way that we can quantify other events. Okay, I, I reserve the right to expand my answer too. Um, Sorry, Dave, I think I ran do over it, you to do it in give two that. minutes if you can. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll make it less. Um, it, I think that there are different kinds of truth claims. There's the empirical truth claims. Uh, there is a uh, a playing card under the rock. I, I don't care how you feel about what that playing card is. It is what it is. You know, it's, if it's an ace of spades, it's an ace of spades. And wanting it to be a two of hearts or feeling like it should be is not going to change it. Uh, your emotions are not going to change the course of mathematics. Uh, there is a mathematical answer to a mathematical uh, question. Um, and emotions don't play any part uh, of that. And so I, I would say that things that we can attach the label of truth to are, are simply going to fit in that category. And if they don't fit in that category, then applying the word truth to it is, is a categorical, categorical error. Uh, and so things where emotions do have sway, I would be hesitant to even use the word truth in those situations. Thanks. Perfect. Uh, how about you, Matt? I think there's a far more important issue at stake here, and that's pronunciation. My Englishness means that I say Tara. Oh, so okay. I think there's going to be a problem here. So there may need to be an adjudication from the lady herself. Well, she's, a she's a Canadian, so I think I, I think I should take. Uh, I'm the authoritative source until we learn differently. <laughs> so which is it, Tara or Tara? What? Which is it, Dale? Tara or Tara? Ah, uh, it's Tara. I've never. So that heard is Tara. also that's that's our planet, Tara. Terra, terra firma. Uh, so, Matthew, just out of yeah, curiosity, the when you terra, by the way, do you, uh, see, mm -hmm. well, you know, gotten, actually, yeah, I, I actually do pronounce things stupidly, like you know, the city of Tyre. I, I you're telling that. me, I, I pronounce <laughs> things Tyree. Um, so we're going to skip Matthew. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Dale, that was so well played. That was, that was Matthew, oh, man, you joined their team. Do you say Tara Firma? Do, do you know the expression Tara Firma? And, and would you pronounce no, it that no, way? It's, oh, no, it's Terra Firma because there's an E in Terra Firma. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's right. And Tara's name is actually T-A-R. Fair enough. Uh, good yeah, point. Thank you for yourself putting wits. unnecessary ease on everything. I told you that would come back to bite you. <laughs> the brick guy. <laughs> All right, Matthew, go ahead. Uh, what, what's your answer for uh, I'm going to be I'm going to be equally short and sweet. Emotions should be eliminated as much as possible. If you're emotionally tied to a claim or have an emotional response to a claim, then your assertion that that claim is true should be considered suspect. Yeah, and I, geez, I think I'm all on the same side. I do think that emotions um, are very poor indicators of truth or are gaining knowledge. They shouldn't be relied upon. Um, you know, it's been proven they're often unreliable. And this is why Christian apologists make distinctions between the emotional versus logical versions of the problem of evil and suffering and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and one thing, because I, I know when I did my show on, on properly basic beliefs, a lot of people were 
thinking that, you know, oh, he just has some sort of feeling, or I, I think it was described by, by Sarah as like a warm, fuzzy type feeling when she was reading the Bible. And, you know, that's what people think I'm saying I have with the witness of the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's, it's not the case. Like, I do know the difference between, you know, a, a warm, fuzzy feeling and irresistible inclination. Um, you know, it's not like I'm, and think about it this way. If, if you reflect on the proposition one plus one equals two, I, I don't think you would describe yourself as having some kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. You're not going to be curling up next to the fireplace with, you know, these mathematical truths or something like that. Um, but yeah, just, I know Tara was looking forward to this. So, or Tara uh, was looking forward to this. So I, I am a human being. Um, I do have emotions, of course. Um, and I just wanted to share a couple movies that, um, so The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, and there's also another one, a low budget movie that I think is a great Christian movie. And it, it's really clever, actually. Uh, it's called The Encounter. I don't know if anyone's seen that, but it, it basically places Jesus in the modern day reacting to uh reacting to people in the modern day but uh yeah th those those ones for whatever reason those movies yeah i i uh i like them you know i i, I don't know if i would say a warm fuzzy feeling but you know i i do i do know what an emotion is and i do contrast that with what i'm describing as an irresistible inclination that is exactly so, what a robot would uh, yeah. say if they were trying to fool you. <laughs> i do know what an emotion is Shut i up, watched Dave. this so very effective Dave. movie so, so andrew it's me, and, it's me and you only for the rest of the podcast then. <laughs> <laughs> so I I think that there's I think that there's something else interesting here and and Dale this is this is not turning on you because by and large you and I agree, uh, but it is it is the case that I have experienced. Uh, sorry to the listeners and perhaps um, you know perhaps I'm pulling out my geek card here, but I actually do have very warm feelings. In the same way that I feel warm feelings toward people, I do uh, have certain emotional reactions to solving very complex problems as a coder. And it is the case that I've actually experienced those things uh, in a science class or in a math class, because in some sense, we experience gratification when we accomplish something that is important to us. I'm not trying to go That's behind true. this discussion. That's true. But, no, I think, yeah, when you say it that way, yeah, okay, I think I think that is true. And I, yeah, okay, go ahead. The purest um, joy you can experience is when you write some code and it works perfectly first time. Yes, that, that, is, that is absolutely right. And one of the things I had in mind, in fact, it's sort of the holy grail of programming, isn't it, Matthew, that, that there's, you, know, you get a group of coders together and what we're trying to do is write good code. And the person that writes the, the best code, we, we often talk about elegant code, right? And, and that person does have uh, a, a very powerful sense of having done something good. Okay. Oh, you, you mentioned if you guys man, really... beautiful code is just such a. I would print it out and I would stick it to my wall. Oh, right. It's just awesome. Yes. Right. I, I think, yes. I think okay. the well, audience well, has seen through this uh, uh, already. If you think that <laughs> the most beautiful thing in the universe is writing code that runs, you need to get out more. 
Better yet, iPhone. Don't. Let, let me rephrase. Let me just rephrase don't. what I just, said. Just, yes. If I got out more, I wouldn't be here in my office talking to you, David. <laughs> <laughs> if I got out more, people would shoot at me. <laughs> You're in the wrong country. Yeah. Come to this one. That, that doesn't happen here. I'm, I'm sorry, Dan. Sorry, uh, you, you've got two more questions for us. Let's, let me. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll just I'll just rephrase that. You know, the number two or some programming code. They're not my type. They they've never done it for me personally. But for you guys, you know, ha have at it. Whatever <laughs> whatever works for you guys. <laughs> um, but um, programmers do it on keyboards. Very nice. Oh, oh sorry. Yep. Okay. <laughs> This I'm is a, sure this is a half Christian sense, show, man. Come on. Um, right, no. Okay, so I'm sorry. You, I'm sorry. Uh, are you from confusion. This. Oh, so this question is from Vic. Uh, I'm probably gonna. I'll have uh, Max Vic say Vic, Vic Ruiz. Um, and David was really excited about this. So he, the way he asked the question was really not really geared towards the skeptics, which it should be because they are the ones on the show. They're the ones that wrote the book. Um, but it, it stemmed from the religious confusion and the variety of biblical opinions. Um, so I, I tried to sort of twist it. Um, and I said, okay, so it, it's undeniable that there is this religious confusion. It, it's one of the premises in my 11 premise argument, for example. And, and I, I use this argument and twist it to the Christian's advantage. But I was wondering, um, you know, I'm not, I know David is, I'm not sure if you guys are, but you, I have this notion of what's called undue confusion. So I, I differentiate between, I guess, for lack of a better word, good and bad, good or allowable, bad or allowable confusions. So I was wondering, are, are there any forms of confu confusion uh, on religious matters that would be allowable like could could god could this be allowed to occur but it's not somehow god who's responsible for this confusion um or is it just if you're confused on anything it's always god's fault the human being it doesn't matter if the human being is closed-minded or or whatever or not interested in the truth it, it's always god that's responsible for any confusion that results um uh number five okay uh matt it's your turn to go first Okay, um, I've got another really short answer. Um, I'm going to caveat with it's possible that the, I got slightly confused reading the question, but I'll give my answer and you can follow up how you how you see fit. My answer is this confusion only serves to show just how man-made the religion is and that any claims that it provides a path to knowledge about God are bogus. Okay. Um, so yeah, so so that was, and that was Vic's actual question, but I want to twist it for you and, and put it on the other end. Is there any form of confusion that doesn't show what you said, where, where it is possible God could allow for this type of confusion, and that's not a problem for Christians? Um, if that was the case, I would say that God is a trickster God and not a God that I want anything to do with. Okay, perfect. Uh, so, David, your turn next. Uh, I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, for God uh, is not the author of confusion. That's what it's supposed to yeah. say here, but that's not actually what it says. Just trust me, it says that somewhere around here. Um, yeah. God is God is not uh, the author of confusion. And if you believe that, 
then there is no such thing as good confusion. Uh, you you can't say, well, he's the he's the author of the good kind of confusion, but he's not the author of the bad kind of confusion. You can't separate it like that. It's kind of like saying, uh, you know, well, you know, my dad has the good cancer. Um, there's there's no good cancer, uh, and so. Uh, I, I do believe that confusion, in fact, is a very powerful counter-apologetic. Uh, and so I don't, I don't think that there is any room to say, mm, well, yeah, this, ki- this kind of confusion is okay. Uh, because that, that directly contradicts uh, what the Bible says. Okay. And Andrew? Can I, Dan, can I, can I just jump in with a question on that one? Um, so you, you, you um, compared confusion with cancer in that answer, David. How about if we compare confusion with pain? You could arguably say there's good pain because if you put your hand near something that's hot that's going to burn you, you feel pain first, which is your body's indication saying something bad is happening, move your hands now. Is there a way that confusion could be conflated with that kind of warning pain? Uh, no. Thank yeah. you. I, so I, I, yeah, I thought about other <laughs> okay. examples that that you could bring up, like for instance, debt. Some people talk about good debt and bad debt. Well, some debt's necessary, but in the perfect world, if if we could make a world uh, without debt, we would do that. We wouldn't say we wouldn't talk about good cool. debt and bad debt. We have to do that because debt is reality, and uh, cholesterol is another one of those things. Well, we got good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, kind of, but we're all going to die. If we could design a body that was going to live forever, um, we wouldn't have uh, you know cholesterol as an issue at all. And so, if you say, um, well, some confusion though makes you stronger. Well, that makes you stronger maybe in a kind of a weak kind of a we're only human and you know the world is the way it is kind of way but then we don't really need god to explain it um at all so if we're if we're talking about a system that god made and especially a book that god wrote so we can we can eliminate all of the the variables all the human variables and this is the pure unadulterated word of god then we we can't insert those excuses into that there is no reason for any confusion uh, in that thing that we would that we would call good confusion. Okay, and just before I go to Andrew, I just want to clarify that. Um, yeah, I, I do think all forms of confusion are less than morally ideal. There, all, all else being equal, we don't want to be confused about anything. Um, but I, I, I sort I was misspeaking when I was sort of saying good versus bad. That, that's why I sort of corrected myself and said, okay, well, allowable because. Any confusion is not morally ideal. Uh, that's why it, re- it requires a justification that I, I tried to come up with. But um, yeah, so think of it allowable confusion versus bad confusion. Well, but, but it's the same answer, though. If you're saying yeah. God allowed it, then God is still culpable for it. If he if he allowed it in a situation when he could have disallowed it, if he could okay. have cleared it up without the confusing being there, then changing it to allowed doesn't doesn't make it better. Fair enough. Okay, so Andrew, sorry, it's your turn. Uh, no problem. So I think I want to turn this glass around. I think no, I want to look at it. You've got to give your end. answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> I want your answer. I'm actually interested, at, like the audience. I want to know what, what do you think. So, so you are going to get it, but okay. but it does require it does require turning the scope around. Okay. So when we talk about confusion, we are necessarily talking about those things. I think uh, from either perspective. 
that can be attributed to natural causes. Um, so you might ask me a question and I might misunderstand it. Um, Matthew said something about that a moment ago. He said, you know, maybe I miss, maybe I misread the question, but I'm going to give you my answer and you can clear it up if you need to, mm -hmm. right? And so when we talk about confusion, what we are saying is the world is a natural place. And so if you're saying God is not the author of confusion, we do live in a world where confusion takes place. So what are you really appealing to when you say to me that God is not the author of confusion if we live in a world where confusion does take place? Yeah, I, well, I, like my take uh, is the undue, I think he's referring to undue confusion. And I know that's, that is that in the sufficient attachment debate? Like we go into that a lot. Is that is that where I get into the undue confusion? David, do well, you know let me ask you, possible? Let me ask you a question. Okay, but you say undue confusion. And, and so that what strikes me as the very same line between uh, sort of objective and subjective in the sense that what you call undue confusion may necessarily not be confusing to someone else. Um, so I don't think that you have, uh, I don't think you've drawn a very clear line. You've created a distinction without a difference. What do you mean by those things that are confusing and those things that are not and for who? It seems to me that you've described a subjective standard. Okay, well, I do, like, this is, this is um, a part, I do define this, but I haven't done it for you guys. So, yeah, undue confusion is any confusion that uh, unnecessarily hinders um, or inhibits someone who meets certain conditions from achieving their ultimate purpose. So, within a Christian context, that is to be saved. That's the purpose of divine revelation. Uh, you know, that, that was why Jesus came. That's why God uh, became incarnated and as Jesus and died on the cross for our sins. So that that's the main topic. It, 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 confusion that hinders that goal is is um, is bad confusion under my definitions or is undue confusion. However, there's the caveat that it has to be unjustified or unnecessary confusion that results in that. And, that's where I get into my conditions. The skeptic has to be open, sincerely open-minded to truth. They they have to be actively seeking after the truth. They can't just be intellectually lazy and, and waiting for some answer. That there has to be some sort of reasonable um, effort to try and discover what the truth is. And then the third one is they have to openly be willing to follow the truth when they discover it. Okay, uh, so let's move on to... The next question. Um, this is from uh, you know your your guy's greatest friend. I think uh, Nick Sack asks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know you guys are not the best of friends, but <laughs> um, yeah, no, he he's got some good good things to say. I think, and he asks a question about again related to the resurrection. Um, now, because we already got into the factuals, like he he's basically basically taking Andrew to task because uh, during the show he, you were you know going after Justin Briley for saying that the resurrection is as certain as a fact of uh, Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon and, and then Justin rebutted no that it's the fact that Jesus was crucified or anything but rather get, rather than getting into historicity of, of facts because we I already asked that above uh, or earlier 
Um, I'm wondering what what's your take on the value of you know you know the way Christian apologists use historical criteria such as the criterion of embarrassment or you know multiple independent attestation and that sort of thing. And um, I was wondering if you see any merit in using these types of criteria or arguments in arriving at a knowledge of these historical facts, or, or are they just totally used that sort of thing? Um, so this is number six, so that's going to be uh, David is first. Okay. Because I think, yeah. I, I went through uh, enough uh, distortion there where I didn't, I, I think I missed some things, so I'm going to just need you to ask the question one more time. I'm sorry. Sure. Uh, do, do you know the historical criteria that Christian apologists use, like, you know, the criterion of embarrassment or multiple independent oh, attestations? Oh, yeah, historical criteria. Uh-huh. Is, is there any value in that, or are they totally worthless as arguments? Or, yeah. I think they are almost worthless in the hands of laymen. So when we're talking about criterion, historical criterion, this is a very academic thing um, and it's not meant to be handled by laymen it's a little bit uh, like handing a layman a scalpel uh, to per perform a surgical procedure and, and asking if that that feels okay to them it's not supposed to um, so I, I think it's the wrong realm and I think that a lot of us enthusiasts get uh, kind of tied up in these academic debates as if we were academics. I mean, we understand enough to talk to, to listen to what they're saying, but uh, frankly, it, it, we couldn't we couldn't pass the same doctoral classes that they pass, even of the people that we think are idiots and that we don't agree with. Um, we didn't go through that study. We don't have the original languages studies. We don't have uh, you know all of the historical citations that that they used or the eight years that that it, of, of information that they have taken to get there. So I think just at a basic level, when laymen start flinging around academic uh, jargon uh, as, as if they were proficient with it, I, I'm suspicious of the outcome anyway. Uh, mm. but, but that said, as a layman, I will say, I will side with some academics on this that think that the, the criterion that historic, historians use is questionable, and this this comes from historians. So historians are not completely in agreement on what makes good criterion. Just to give you one example of this, uh, the criterion of embarrassment is an embarrassing criterion, and I thought so before I read that other academics thought that too. Uh, but the way Christians use it in particular is kind of embarrassing. They will say, "Well, you know, these women show up at the tomb." That's an embarrassment, and so it must be true. Well, here's the thing. That's not an embarrassment. That is the only way the story reads that makes sense. The reason the women were at the tomb was not because they were faithful, but because they were preparing the body. So it, it, for, for, to say that this, is, uh, you know, this fits with the criterion of embarrassment is, is embarrassing. Uh, so they're, they're straining at gnats to, to make that criterion fit with their judgment. And there are plenty of other historians who will look at that and say, yeah, that's, that's wrong. Another one would uh, be, well, Jesus was baptized by John. That's an embarrassment. Well, no, it wasn't. Uh, there, uh, there are a lot of uh, little things in the New Testament we don't have time to go through one by one where Christians will say, well, that's an embarrassment. If it wasn't true, it wouldn't be there. No, 
I, I think in every case that I have seen Christians bring up, uh, they're, they're misunderstanding some nuance of the literature uh, as to why that, in fact, is not an embarrassment. And so because that is a criteria that can be so misused to, to make any point that you want to, many historians uh, on this basis uh, do not use it and do not support it. And so I, I just think that a lot of layman Christian jump in on this historical criterion thing because some Christian historians have used it to try to make their case. Uh, and the layman, rather than really understanding what's behind it, it just kind of grabs on and says, yeah, I'll take that. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think we should be in that discussion anyway. And if we do get into it, you'll find that historians are very much in disagreement on the criteria. Okay. Uh, so, Matt, uh, we'll turn it over to you. Um, okay, I've got quite a long answer. It might not cover, I don't uh, know if it's going to cover everything, but I've done, done several short five, ones. So, can you get it um, done in five anyway, minutes, though? Or? I'll, I'll see what I can do. But okay, first, I'm going to read from you Justin's book about the Rubicon. Um, this is what he, he says. This means, for example, that we have far better historical evidence for the life of Jesus than we do for the crossing of the Rubicon by Caesar. Now, I have a problem with that. Justin compared a single event in the life of Julius Caesar, the crossing of the Rubicon, with the existence of Jesus as an individual. This is a mismatched comparison. Either compare events from each person's life or compare the evidence for each individual existing, but don't mix the two. This is not either a genuine narrative mistake by Justin or, given that other apologists helped Justin with his book, it exposes a poor level of historical appreciation by Christians. So that's about that. My favourite historical comparison is the story of King Harold in the Battle of Hastings. The legend goes that King Harold died by having an arrow shot in his eye. There are a few accounts that hint that's the case. Accounts penned after the event. The Bayeux Tapestry, I believe it's available to view in France, is an embroidered depiction of the battle which shows Harold holding an arrow with the tip of the arrow near his eye. This depiction doesn't show him dead, and like the writings, it's an image created after his death and most likely by people who were not there to witness it. Historians generally agree that the arrow eye incident is a legend that didn't really happen as described. And this is how most events from that long ago are viewed. The broad action, a person died or crossed a river, can be accepted, but the smaller specific details should be seen with a very healthy dose of scepticism because there is simply no way to be certain at all. And this is especially true for events which require some form of supernatural or magical activity because the supernatural realm needs to be confirmed. And in the absence of that confirmation, any accounts of supernatural activity from the past should be subject to the highest scepticality possible. And that's how I view the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It's a story that has passed into legend, but the event most likely did not happen as described. Okay, perfect. Um, and Andrew, it's your turn. Okay, mine is short. It seems to me that there's a lot to do about the minimum facts for the resurrection, and I will always happily stack those supposed historical facts against the historic and, scienti uh, and scientific fact that people don't rise from the dead. Perfect. Um, yeah, and 
Uh, I guess on my take, um, I, I don't. I, I do think that uh, David's original points make a lot of sense. Actually, I, I I do notice that sometimes people can apply these criteria and misapply these criteria. And um, you know, like I know Richard Carrier, for example, he addresses these historical criteria and, and some of the problems that come up with trying to use them and. Um, you know, I, I think there are some valid points, but I, I don't think he's necessarily, like with the criterion of embarrassment, I, I think that is a good criterion to use. But I don't think uh, you're arguing against the criteria themselves so much as their misapplication by, by lay people. So in that, in that sense, yeah, I would agree. We, we need to be careful uh, when we're applying these and, and look carefully what the scholarship says, see if there's any counter arguments, you know, to, to determine if, if it really was embarrassing for uh, the gospel writers to uh, to mention that women were the first people to to see Jesus and that sort of thing. So, you know, David mentioned one counter response. I, I personally do think that this is a good reason to think that uh, that that the women were the first to see Jesus is uh, a good argument based on the criterion of embarrassment. I think it really is embarrassing, but uh, you need to. I don't think so. That's fair enough, but I'm just saying, yeah. Like it, the point is, it, it's not about the specific arguments. It's about the criterion themselves. I think the criterion themselves are good, but you have to be careful about misapplying them because you can make, you know, false judgments. Like you said, you you think I'm totally off on that fact. That's not a problem with the criterion per se. It's the problem with me not applying it properly or something. So I'm not rebutting you. I, I do want to clarify my position, though. I'm I'm not, in fact, saying it's just the application of the criteria, oh, okay. and that's not what other scholars are arguing either. Uh, I, I am saying that the criterion itself is faulty, which is which mirrors what other scholars say. And so one of the reasons uh, you would say it's the criteria and not just the application is because we have no idea what was embarrassing to the writers. We have no. We have to read a lot of ourselves into what we think they were trying to say to say that this would have been embarrassing or that would have been embarrassing. We have no idea. Don't we have, as a as a, a sort of global society, a lot of criteria that argue against the resurrection? Aren't we? Aren't we in some sense sort of special pleading for this idea uh, that that there was a, a Messiah sent from heaven and, you know, and some special facts add up to him rising from the dead and, and going to build mansions for everyone. It seems to me uh, that when we talk about these criteria for resurrection, we're ignoring the great body of history that says things just don't work that way. Okay. Yeah, that's fair enough. You need to look at certain counter, you know, if I hear what, if I think I understand what you're saying is that these criteria can be used to establish facts that go against the truth of the resurrection or something like that. Uh, well, so it, it's a double-edged sword. Is that is that your point? Well, I think maybe, but okay. if I, I'm trying to follow David's line of thinking. Oh, okay. And so... You know, we've got the uh, criteria of embarrassment 
as for instance. Sorry, just to interrupt. This will you'll have the final word here because I'm trying to keep it within what? two hours, and we got one oh. more question to go. But oh, because uh, I was throwing this back. And hey, actually, if oh. if it's that close to two hours, we'll split it into two. Yeah. Um, so the, well, we we started the extravaganza well, we week late. is back. <laughs> uh, no, it's it not. It no. It, it, and, and on my end, I, I'm just thinking of the audience or whatever. Like, if sure. if you want to go slightly over uh, to out, we've only got one more question. No, let's to go, go over. Let's, go. let's let's do it all. I'll, yeah, let's I'll go split for it. it. I'll split it logically uh, if necessary. Gotcha. But you got to remember, uh, the first thirty or forty minutes of this recording has nothing to That's, do with the show. It's all cuttable, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So you got to get rid of that. I can yeah. tell you that there is about forty-five or fifty minutes that won't make it. <laughs> because... Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> So I'm kind of I kind of want to generalize David's thought here. So you talk about the uh, criteria of embarrassment as an important element in establishing that you know these women were the first of the tomb and, and et cetera. So the whole the whole line of implication after that, right? But surely we could go through history and dig up. Uh, embarrassing facts in other in other religions, and they could sort of use that as a as a play to say, well, this is so unlikely that it must be confirming, mm -hmm. and that's what I think I heard from from David. Okay, and just since we <laughs> since we bought ourselves just a hair more time, uh, I was I that like, fair, David? No, that's fair, but I, I want to leave an example so that people know exactly, so they don't have to uh, grope around for what I meant. So it's it's a quick example. Uh, and it's easy. So, uh, in, in fact, someone else mentioned it. So we'll we'll talk about the women uh, being the first witnesses. And that, that's somehow embarrassing. Here's here's why the criteria criterion of embarrassment simply cannot apply there. Let's just say everything they say about the the reliability of witness the women's testimonies was true, which is not. But um, but let, the criterion of embarrassment does not apply here if the author wasn't talking to dyed-in-the-wool Orthodox Jewish men because those people would have said, ah, women, theh. But if the author was aiming his message at a uh, different Jewish society that did accept women and maybe the lower rungs of society in particular, uh, where women were uh, considerably more important and where there was a lot more egalitarianism, then you can say, oh, no, not only was that not embarrassment, that was the point. He was talking to those kind of people. Those are the people that he was trying to reach and convert. Now, you have to assume that you know who he was trying to reach before you can say whether this is an embarrassing uh, thing or not. You do not know that. And so there is at no point can you apply the criterion of embarrassment to this because you don't know what the author would have considered embarrassing about this. The, the, the women showing up first and that being different from what society would expect may have been his entire point. Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, just as a, a last couple points, um, because it isn't about this specific example. It's about the criteria in general, but you, you raise a good point. So first of all, uh, Andrew raises a good point that, well, the criterion of embarrassment or these other historical criteria could be used to establish facts in other religions. Yeah, so what? I, I use that to... That's why I think Muhammad probably existed. There are some embarrassing things that I think were probably embarrassing for the for these Islamic authors and within that culture. So I would say, yeah, on a 
balance of probabilities, I think it's historical that Muhammad thought he was demon-possessed at some point. Um, on, on David's point, yes, that's true. So we, we can't—it's not that we know nothing. Um, it, it's a little bit tricky. It can get a little bit trickier at some points in trying to identify. So, so this fact was identified in Mark, and, and you're giving, you know, Bart Ehrman gave this, or Richard Carrier gave it in, in some mythicist debates as well. But so we, we can establish that at least within orthodox circles later on, this fact was embarrassing. Uh, certain facts were embarrassing. Luke and Matthew omit uh, or uh, omit certain stories, probably because they find it weird. So that, you know, those are. This was an argument by Zebra Zebra Cook. What? Someone have a dog? Yes, it's <laughs> it's my dog. He's been trying to chime in for a while. So so yeah, it, it does go back. Okay, well, we need to assess. Would Mark have have found that in? found that embarrassing if you want to use that argument and and assess mark maybe it is what david says that no well mark's whole point was he's upturning the social order you know like the first will be the first will be last in heaven and the last will be first and that sort of thing so so that's part of the consideration underneath this criteria to see if it's being applied properly or not that that's why i i don't think the criteria itself is bad but it's how we apply it? Are you just saying, "Oh yeah, of course, that's that's embarrassing"? I, who the heck would want a a woman to be your primary witness or, or something like that? Um, so it does get more complicated. But I, yeah, I, I would just stand firm that I, I don't think that point, at least, argues against the criteria so much as it is the application. But um, yeah, that I'll, I'll end it here unless anyone really really wants to go more on this. But we do have a question from Marvin next. So I'll, what do you guys want to do? Keep going or? Go with Marvin. Let's take Marvin. Yeah, let's take the question. All right. Hi, Marvin. You'll you'll see that I stuck up for you here, Marvin. Just just so you know. <laughs> that that's not off the air though. You should have been hearing what he was saying about you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, this this is um, I guess this is related to the third part, but I, I didn't remember this in the show. But there there was a third part about Christian value or human, like the meaning of life type type thing. So uh, he he says now the believer, the Christian, often talks about life having meaning, value, and purpose. What does the skeptic mean by those terms uh, when they use them in the same context? Uh, so seven, Andrew, you're first. Oh wow! I didn't realize. Uh, I didn't realize it would get handed to me. Uh, I wasn't keeping track. Okay, so I'm going to first draw out what I mean when I use each of those words, right? Because uh, words have usages; they don't have definitions. So we've got to be pretty careful uh, not to take someone else's loaded words in this case. So uh, value, uh, sorry, meaning. Uh, is probably something different internally. Uh, something may mean something to me, right? It has a, it has a particular um, way that it fits into my internal landscape. Whether I can ever communicate that meaning successfully is a separate issue. So no matter what meaning is to me, and no matter where I get that meaning, I don't know that we ever share 
we ever share meaning through anything other than language uh, or shared experience. I mean, we may, uh, we may kayak together uh, and have some sense of, of sharing an event, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll leave meaning and, uh, and say that the same is probably true for value and purpose. So I, I don't know in exactly what way Marvin is suggesting that we ought to talk about value and purpose. But the purposes that I have as an individual uh, largely come from, the, from what things mean to me. Uh, so should I consider my job as a, as a developer uh, uh, as an external thing that was uh, uh, sort of painted on me at the beginning, right? And certainly coding doesn't mean the same thing to, uh, to David or Dale, to you, as it means to me. Uh, so what do we mean when we're talking about meaning? I'm not sure what the question really is about. Okay. And, and the same thing is true for value and purpose. Okay, um, so uh, David, what would you say about this? So uh, the genesis of this question coming from Marvin is probably uh, a statement that I made oh a year ago uh, in, on the Unbelievable Boards uh, where I suggested on, uh, on a program where, this, where the topic was uh, cosmic meaning, um, this, this idea of universal purpose. Uh, it, at that time, Marvin was agitating for you know, there, there must be a universal purpose and eternal consequences. Uh, you know, things have an eternal kind of meaning with a capital M or a purpose with a capital P or value with a capital P. And uh, I suggested that uh, as humans, we have no more cosmic, pro- our individual lives have no more cosmic purpose than dog poop. Um, and so I have taken some feedback on that <laughs> for okay. for a while okay. um and i very non-acerbic way of saying it <laughs> <laughs> so i i'm i'm pretty sure uh that that's what he means and i stand by exactly what i said on uh, you know our our lives didn't have any meaning before we were born uh even while we're here uh the star you know a hundred light years away does not care and, and is not moved one way or the other by our existence. And a uh, hundred years after we're gone, technology notwithstanding, we will be forgotten by, by every living person on earth. Um, only the, the very few of us um, you know, might, might be remembered. And I don't think that there's anything that I can do to be on that list of, of people that would be remembered. And so in terms of some cosmic meaning stretching uh, out eternally before we existed or out eternally after we existed in uh, throughout space and time um, uh, you know its entirety even though it will never be touched by us I think it's it's nonsensical to say that our lives have meaning in that regard our lives only have meaning and purpose in a very local sense it means something to us uh, and we define our purpose it means something to the people within our sphere of in- influence Um you know, so it, it definitely has a limited meaning, but it doesn't have any cosmic meaning. Um, to suggest otherwise is to suggest that uh, some type of fate, like, like you know, we're we're born and we are fated to be a certain thing or do a certain thing, 
And when you when you go down that road, you kind of have to say things like, well, you know, the the person that died at one year old from cholera, their their life had such meaning from the beginning. God put them here for a purpose and they're suffering. You know, he put their suffering there so that uh, other people would learn the value of uh, you know, limited lifespan. And, you know, you start saying ridiculous things like that to try to, to pull out some cosmic meaning from disastrous things that just aren't there. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, Matt, Matt, your turn. Um, I, th- I think has already been hinted at. There's, I think there's some uh, context required for uh, extracting what is meant by the words meaning value and, and, and purpose we can i can guess given that uh, it's, it's it's coming from the christian perspective that it's uh, some kind of a he- heavenly divine uh, ob- objective meaning from a skeptic as me as a, as a skeptic that means nothing t- to me so w- what in my life has meaning value or purpose it will it is what what motivates me um, I have a job. I have to get on a train in the morning to to go to my job. The purpose of that is to generate an income for my family, so that I can have a, a meaningful life at home. Is there anything that would cause me to stop doing that job? Well, well, yes. Um, David and Andrew already know that uh, one of my hobbies is is acting. I'm very involved in the local drama uh, uh, group. I've got the leading role in the next play I'm in. Plug, plug. No one's going to come and watch it. Um, if I was to be, if somebody was, if a, a scout was going to be sitting in that audience would and would offer me a, a paid role to act in the movie after doing one of those plays, would I pack in my job and and take that? Yes, you know. And then my motivation and my my um, meaning and my purpose would be utterly switched to to doing that. It's all very much of the moment. And, and what motivates me for the, the goals that I want and have an eye for this is entirely subjective. Um, as I mentioned in the last uh, uh, roundtable that we did, um, I've got missionary family, uh, and, uh, and I spent the former years of my, my life in Central Africa growing up in that missionary environment. We had some unpleasant things happen to members of my family uh, and in the wider community during that time. I would be unhappy that uh, somebody would express to me that those were part of some some greater cosmic uh, purpose in life. And if someone was to suggest to me that some of those atrocious things were part of some, some greater good, I can guarantee that my response to that would be very unpleasant. So, no, I reject the concept of any kind of uh, greater uh, purpose or meaning, and it is very much... So to answer the question, what does that mean uh, in to me? It's what motivates me. Perfect. Okay. Um, yeah, I think we can leave it there, because the question is, you know, what does the skeptic mean? I'm, I'm not a skeptic, so I don't know. That, that's up for you guys to, to define, as you guys have laid out your case. Um, yeah, are there any, that, that's it for all of our questions for this week. Um, are any final comments we should, or, uh, yeah, I guess, um, is there any final closing remarks that either David and Andrew have based on their experience of being on Unbelievable that they want to leave for the audience and, and Matt as a listener? Um, is there anything, you know, a final comment you want to say about the show? 
Uh, we'll, we'll start with uh, Andrew. I don't have any uh, final comments about the show, but I will uh, shamelessly plug Matthew's production and say that uh, in the production, <laughs> he, uh, it's, it's <laughs> say that in the production, uh, the lead must have a Southern accent. And Matthew has been practicing his Southern accent. So if there are indeed scouts listening to this combined episode of Asking Atheist Anything and Skeptics and Seekers, go watch Matthew perform and give him a shot elsewhere so that he can pack in his job as an IT guy. Okay. So, and is this oh, southern, awesome. southern U.S. or Southern Wales or, I mean, Southern internationally can mean anything? Uh, no, he's got to actually have a southern accent in the way that you and I would understand it. Yeah, Matthew and I have been talking about it. <laughs> well, you know, hey, he pronounces Tara properly. <laughs> okay, I'm done. Sorry. <laughs> All right, uh, David, do you have anything to say? Uh, any final So I took, I took some notes thinking that the program would go a very different way in round one. It did not. I did not use any of those notes. So do I? do I have some you know some things uh regarding the show uh appearance that have not been said yet pages uh so they will show up in uh other shows and programs so uh okay. lock it in at skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com or any of the other places where i might uh, pop in and uh probably in the form of supplementals and that sort of thing um so, yeah, I think uh, I think I'll That's leave it good. at that. Okay, and and Matt, I know you weren't on the show, but I guess just as a listener, did did you have uh, any sort of final uh, things you wanted to say about it, or? Um, well, I, I I did a reasonable or I did a partial review of it uh, in, yeah. in our last show. I, I won't take up a, a lot of time uh, on this, I, but I did like the show. I did like listening to the show. The show has generated quite a lot of uh, conversation on, on the forum. I would like to see Justin do something like that again. It helps his his book as well as uh, other projects. And I'd like to see Justin being a little bit more brave in, I hope you're listening, Justin, be a little <laughs> more brave in the conversations with some of the, his uh uh, atheist listeners one one just one example of a show that he could do talk to some people get some people on who've lost their faith and talk about about their journey be really really brave justin and bring in that kind of conversational show see what that generates so loud cheers I, I know that we i know that we're done but uh sorry matthews that's too good of a comment to just leave there i've, I've got a dog pile onto it uh, this week's show generated over 1,600 comments before the new one uh, hit. Not That's over 1,000, not over 1,500, over 1,600. There is not a show in the archive that can uh, boast that for this period of time. And I've been asking the board, you know, what do you think, what do you think that is? And uh, universally, the board agrees, it ain't us. <laughs> we're, not, we're not brilliant. Andrew and I aren't brilliant. We're hicks from the sticks. Um, it's, it's not the topics. These talks have been talked to death on the show. Um, and so what was it? And I think that I agree with, uh, I don't know if it was Marvin or someone else who usually doesn't have, uh, much good to say about me, but I, I agree with them fully. It's the fact that we're hometown boys from the, from the community, uh, that built this program. 
and so I would say to Justin, there are a lot of people on the board who are smarter uh, than Andrew, cleverer than me in a pinch, uh, and that the community would also rally around. And that goes for Christian and non-Christian. So you you really should do more um, looking at the community that is sitting right there under your nose every week and that is making this show uh, what it is. Uh, we, you know, there are a, this lot, of, is, uh, a lot of voices that could that could imp, you know help this show. So this is Dave. You said you've said enough that it's got to be piled onto. Sorry, <laughs> this is this is my call for Val. Uh, I Val is probably one of the top intellects I've ever had the pleasure of reading in philosophy. He makes his home there. He deserves to be on Unbelievable. Excellent. Yeah. Sarah, I, uh, oh. and Sarah Matthew, Joyce, I, I want to see them on a show um, they, because they are they are so much cleverer than you realize. Uh, just just yes. from comments on, you know, I've had uh, Andrew and I have both had a chance to talk to Sarah extensively because she was part of the book. Uh, Joyce. Uh, comes around skeptics and seekers, and uh, we did a whole comment show uh, just recently uh, with some of her observations. I disagreed with every one of them, but they were all worth interacting with. Um, you, there, you know, there are riches on both sides of the aisle, and if yes. there's anything that Andrew and I can do to help the community, it's to say, Justin, what you did for us, do for some of the rest of them. Yes, and by the way, I'll also put in a shameless plug for two more. Everyone's skeptical friend, Jim, deserves a spot. And Michael Brady deserves a spot. Oh, yeah. Um, Both of those guys, look, I would not get in a debate with Jim when Jim's at his best. And I'd strongly advise nobody to. Jim Jim is, uh, is a power... And he's a friendly guy. He's a good voice for unbelievable. And and by the way, our chapter one writer, Matthew Taylor, deserves a spot on unbelievable. As does our current moderator, Dag. He's already been read out. I absolutely want to see Dag on the show. I want to see I'm, Dag on the show in the worst kind of way because if you were talking really like about hey, you can't steal this. You can't steal this. I'm stealing it. Have it. I want Dag it. on the no. show. <laughs> Look, Dale has already been read out of the mailbag from Justin. And so I think all we're saying is there's a there's a deep bench of people in the community. And Justin has regular people on sorry. Regularly, <laughs> no better word. Sorry, this is all I had. Um, so, if you're listening, uh, everyone that is listening that writes in, David and I didn't particularly want this glory. We don't particularly want it after this. We did this because we had a community book. We did this because we came from the community, and we sincerely believe that Justin needs to reach into this community more because some of his best intellectual talent posts every week on the discussion boards. Yeah. If you think if you think 1600 is a big number, I would pay pay-per-view money to have Joyce versus Sarah. Uh I, 
30, I'd pay $30 for the show and $10 a day during the week to participate in the comments. <laughs> so you're, you're not even beginning to cap what, what that audience has to offer, Justin. So you should, you should think about doing it at least once, once every couple of months. I'll promote the fight so that I can take the promoter's cut. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, basically, I think you guys have taken a lot of the words out of my mouth. But yeah, just from the Christian perspective, I thought this was a great show. I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I sent an email to Justin saying, you know, congrat, congratulations on... Um, you know, first of all, dealing with David, I know what it's like dealing with him week after week, but uh, <laughs> I know he can be a tough, uh, tough opponent, but yeah, no, good on him. He was not just the moderator, but he was also participating in the show. That, that was something new and, you know, interacting with people that, that you know and interact with on a weekly basis. That I think this was a good good idea for a show and I hope it does establish a precedent, have, have some more on whoever wants to go on and, and say their piece. You know, it's, uh, it's a good idea every once in a while to get a break from the scholars and stuff. Uh, Gentlemen, and, and I think we're wrapped. Oh, sorry, Dale. You like that sounds like a wrap to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was. Uh, so have a have a good week, everybody. Uh, say say goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.